In the mid-1940s, basketball's popularity ran a distant third behind the older and more established sports of baseball and football. Professional basketball had only caught on in the early 1920s when neighborhood players began forming barnstorming teams that toured the country playing for money. Many of these early teams, like the cities they came from, were divided strictly along ethnic lines. Now you gotta understand that all sports were segregated at that time, so basketball was no different than any others. So you would have the Jewish team here, you would have the Irish team here, you would have the black team here. And again, because it was this urban community game, teams would develop in pockets, in, in neighborhoods. And that's really the origin of basketball. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All righty then. How are you doing, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and of course, this is Good Seats Still Available. Say it loud, say it proud. It's the curious little podcast. That is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. Hope you're doing okay. Hope you're staying safe, being well, and uh, looking forward to spring uh, as uh, I am. Of course, the the college hoops tournament's coming up, all kinds of fun stuff, but maybe some slight returns to some levels of normalcy, let's hope, uh, especially when it comes to sports. Our little little genre, of course, is uh, that which used to be in pro sports, right? That's defunctness. That's things that no longer exist. Uh, things that have been previously domiciled, uh, perhaps even events that uh, sort of came and went uh, somehow stuck in your uh, collective consciousnesses, he says, in uh, pro sports. And we're uh, we're all about trying to remember those things and uh, digging deep and uh, maybe unearthing some, uh, some tidbits along the way. Uh, this week is no exception. You may remember about uh, oh, two months ago, we had a uh, uh, a great conversation uh, around the uh, the life uh, and times uh, of Eddie Gottlieb, uh, Mr. Basketball, if you will, the mogul uh, with our pal Rich Westcott. Uh, we are uh, going to go back to Philadelphia for uh, a bit of a story that uh, kind of tangentially and man overlaps quite a bit, actually, uh, with the story of, of Eddie Gottlieb, but uh, uh, is uh, important in its own right and uh, deserves uh uh, investigation and uh, and celebration uh, on its lonesome. And that is the team that uh, we talked about uh, with Rich uh, that uh, Eddie Gottlieb was uh, instrumental in founding and arguably uh, was a springboard uh, for many, many, many uh, basketball exploits, especially the pro level, the NBA ultimately, but uh, lots of stops in between. And that was a team known as the Philadelphia Spas. Yeah, that was their name. Uh, it was actually an acronym, S-P-H-A, uh, which uh, stood for the uh, at the time the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association. And uh, as you could get uh, a sense from that clip uh, that you just heard, that was narrated by Harry Smith. Uh, he formerly of CBS News and now I believe still of, of NBC, MSNBC News uh, fame uh, for the, uh, the old and I think still ongoing A&E a uh, series called Biography about the Harlem Globetrotters. We'll talk about that in a second while that's important. But uh, you get that little hint there, uh, including a little uh, a quote uh, from the late great uh, sports writer slash columnist Frank DeFord about the uh, uh, 
the uh, the world of pro basketball, or the earliest days of pro basketball in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, even this is pre NBA friends. Uh, you had a few pro leagues kind of, you know, spouting up here and there, the American Basketball League and uh, the Basketball Association of America and, and, and some other stuff. The Eastern League, uh, which we'll get into in a, in a couple of episodes to come. Kind of uh, uh, sort of a mix of of amateur, uh, pro, semi-pro, uh, industrial league stuff. All of that sort of was in the melting pot of what ultimately became uh, pro hoops that we know today. Um, but as as uh, Mr. DeFord uh, hinted at, right, the origins, a lot of the early days origins of the pro game actually were very solidly rooted in, I guess you call them ethnic enclaves, uh, certainly uh uh, sports uh, organizations centered around those uh, uh, in, in Harlem, in, in uh, uh, various African-American neighborhoods, certainly in the, the Jewish communities. And that's where we find and actually see the beginnings of this interesting Philadelphia spas story. Yeah, it was sort of it emanated out of, um, I, I guess you could sort of say it was sort of Jewish social clubs uh, at the time. And again, basketball at the time, very uh, ethnically uh, centered. Uh, the Celtics, uh, which we know today, of course, uh, were pretty much a, a, an Irish uh, a sort of enclave, a, a first, second ge- generation Irish uh, folks in uh, the Boston uh, region, um, sort of uh, domiciling and, and sort of founding, if you will, that team that sort of uh, uh, emanated and, and sort of became a dominant force in pro basketball. Well, the Spas, perhaps a little less uh, um understood or celebrated as say the Celtics might've been, or even the Harlem Globetrotters. Again, we'll get to that part of the story in a second. Uh, but the spas were, were the, uh, I, I, you could make the argument, the engine of basketball in Philadelphia and, and what an influence that this team had. That's what we're going to get into, uh, in this week's conversation with our guest, Doug Stark. He ought to know he's written, uh, I think sort of the quintessential story of the spas It's called the spas, the life and times of basketball's greatest Jewish team. Um, and I, while uh, by all accounts, this is absolutely a quote unquote Jewish story, right? Heritage, uh, ethnicity, um, uh, pride, uh, uh, first generation American stories, uh, uh, emigration, all that immigration, emigration, all that stuff, right? Uh, but it's also the story of Philadelphia uh, and sports as we got into a bit with uh our conversation about Eddie Gottlieb. Uh, but uh, on top of that, even, it's a story of the roots of professional basketball uh, in the United States. And uh, as we get into, uh, the spas were absolutely a foundational element uh, from sort of these ethnic, shall we say, tributaries uh, that uh, uh, eventually, through people like Gottlieb and others, uh, sort of uh, manifested itself in what ultimately became uh, uh, in the fifties, the, uh, the national basketball association and Lord knows what it's become since then. And, and, and what we know the NBA to be today, but, uh, you know, you could uh, be excused, I guess, for, um, not sort of understanding, I guess, the, the relative humble and, uh, socially oriented and ethnically, uh, 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 oriented, uh, origins of the NBA that exists today. Uh, it seems almost uh, incongruous, right? Uh, it doesn't seem like uh, uh, the the roots uh, of of today's NBA were even uh, could be even can be considered to be that. But it's uh, it's fascinating. That's why we kind of do what we do here on this show. Um, 
you young whippersnappers out there, you think you know the NBA and, and hoops and uh, and all that stuff. Well, you know, it really is is a fascinating journey to kind of go into how really all this kind of got started. And um, look, uh, specifically, uh, the uh, the spas uh, themselves were directly uh, related to and spawned uh, teams like the Philadelphia Warriors, right, which was the the team uh, that uh, not only won a championship or so uh, in Philadelphia, but became, of course, what we know today as the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, there is an absolute direct lineage uh, to the not only uh, from the Golden State down to Philadelphia's Warriors, but frankly, the uh, some of the uh, uh, con- contributive elements uh, to the Philadelphia Warriors came from the spas. Um, we mentioned the Harlem Globetrotters. There is absolutely a direct relationship uh, from uh, the uh, the offspring of the spas or what was left of the spas uh, in uh, seeding the, the Harlem Globetrotters, in particular, the Washington Generals, uh, the team that was uh, essentially created uh, not necessarily to lose to the Globetrotters, although that didn't hurt the uh, the barnstorming uh, business model for sure, but to compete with on a regular basis with quality play, uh, Red Clots uh, and others, uh, part of that mix. Um, but that also is a story, the Globetrotters and that of the Generals, that emanates directly from the spas, if you can believe that. Uh, if you fancy yourself as uh, as an historian or somebody who's interested in the old American Basketball League and, and that of Abe Saperstein, uh, obviously the founder uh, of the the Globetrotters uh, franchise and and the American Basketball League as well, a previous episode that we had with our pal Murray Nelson. Um, uh, The EBL, the Eastern Basketball League, and Eddie Gottlieb, all of these stories actually have roots uh, in the story of the Philadelphia Spas. And we're going to get into that with Doug, Doug Stark, that is, uh, in our conversation this week. Uh, It's enlightening. Uh, I learned a, a tremendous amount. And again, you think you know everything there is to know about pro sports, the teams that you follow and that kind of stuff, the leagues. I, I had no idea. And I fancy myself as actually being fairly uh, um, you know, knowledgeable about these kinds of things and, and going out of my way to learn. Uh, and this is a, an episode that I think you will uh, absolutely not only enjoy, uh, but you will learn a ton and it will uh, reorient your uh, what you think is your knowledge of the pro game of hoops in the States. Uh, coming up, our conversation with Doug Stark in mere moments. Our uh, sponsor this week, I think, uh, is a perfect place for you to explore some of the history of all of those entities and more. Uh, and that's sportshistorycollectibles.com. Yeah, that's our pal Dean Mitchell. Uh, jealously, we look his way uh, since he lives in the beautiful San Diego metropolitan area. Who wouldn't want to live there? Especially as spring seems to kind of not want to happen fast enough around here in the Chicago metro area. But sportshistorycollectibles.com, like the name implies, it's it's a fascinating treasure trove of great stuff. A, a, a Dean and his pals uh, get a lot of stuff on consignment. Uh, he finds stuff from uh, garage sales, uh, estate sales and stuff. This is high quality stuff, stuff that um, you're not necessarily going to find on eBay and frankly is uh, more uh, verified as higher quality. And uh, he does a tremendous job, Dean does, to photograph all this stuff. So you you truly have uh, a good sense of what you're going to be getting. And, and the stuff is just fantastic. And there's a great specialty in teams and leagues and uh, uh, events in pro sports that, uh, for whatever reasons, are no longer with us. 
Uh, and uh, there's just a, a tremendous uh, volume of things. And, and there's new stuff just about every week coming in there. And of course, a promo code uh, for our listeners can be had uh, by using the code GOODSEATS. You can enjoy, please, with our compliments, 15% off all of the great things that you're uh, likely to stumble across, love, and uh, hopefully purchase at Sports History Collectibles. Dot com. Again, promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off all of your purchases. Thank you to Dean, and we appreciate you checking him out. Uh, we got a little referral love when uh, hopefully you purchase a little something there. Uh, we appreciate that too. And let's move on, shall we? Here comes our conversation, a wonderful one. One I learned a ton. I think you will too. I think you'll uh, enjoy it thoroughly. Here it is. Doug Stark, let's talk Philadelphia Spas Pro Basketball. As always, please enjoy. So I grew up uh, in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is uh, the western part of the state. And it's the town just north of Springfield. And Springfield, Massachusetts, is where the game of basketball was invented in December of 1891. And growing up, uh, I played a lot of sports in the neighborhood, and basketball was the one that I played the most. And uh, early on, probably in my uh, junior high school years and then high school years, we got a uh, membership to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And so we went, so you know, quite often. And my parents would sort of drop us off, and we could just go run around, look at things, uh, maybe buy a trinket in the gift shop. And uh, at that time, the Basketball Hall of Fame did a number of other events. So there might be uh, uh, autograph sessions, you know, with with current players at the time, like Danny Ainge, who played with the uh, Celtics at the time, did an autograph session. They had um, NBA Day in Springfield, which was the last uh, it was the last preseason game every year. And the last preseason game always featured, at least for a while, the defending NBA champs. So uh, it was NBA day in Springfield. And during the day, there would be a luncheon downtown in Springfield with the two teams and people who played, uh, who paid, you know, quite a bit to sit with them. And then they would open the doors after lunch and anybody could sort of run in for 20 minutes and go to the different tables and get uh, autographs of the players, uh, which I did a few times. And I can remember it was the only time when I was in school that my parents, actually my mother sort of wrote, wrote me a note that I could get out of school (laughs) for the day because I would go. And in the evening they would have the game. So, you know, in 1983, after the Sixers won, they played that year uh, in Springfield against the San Antonio Spurs. So it was seeing, uh, you know, George Gervin and artist Gilmore play against uh, Moses Malone and, uh, Dr. J. And so I was always a basketball fan. And then, uh, you know, I went to college and I went to graduate school and my focus was on uh, history. And, you know, I knew that I liked history, but I wasn't very interested in teaching in a classroom. And in graduate school, I found uh, museum studies as a program uh, for careers, um, sort of public history, museums, archives, Uh, cultural institutions. So I began pursuing that. And I had a number of odd jobs through the years for a couple years after graduation. And then in um, 
My first full-time job uh, came in January of 1998, in which the Basketball Hall of Fame was looking for an archivist uh, and a librarian. And oh, so I... Uh, kismet, isn't it? <laughs> it was. Uh, you know, it sort of felt like a dream job at the time. So I relocated back home and I took the position. And essentially, I was helping to organize the library collection, photos, videos, and I answered a lot of reference requests. And I helped out with um, uh, a lot of uh, exhibits that were in the building. And, I, you know, I spent four years there. And one day I was uh, walking around the upstairs of the, of the museum, looking at some of the um, earlier history of the game, uh, you know, pre-1940 uh, some of the uniforms and the photos. And there was one photo on the wall. It wasn't very big, probably less than uh, eight by 10. And it showed uh, a picture of this Jewish basketball team with the uh, Hebrew letters on it. Uh, and it, you know, it said the Philadelphia spas, uh, you know, something like we're champions in the uh, American basketball league a number of years or something like that. And so I got uh, interested. I said, you know, this is interested. I, uh, interesting. I have a lot of uh, general interest in sort of Jewish sports and Jewish athletes in general. And so when I moved on to uh, my next position for a number of years, um, I started to research them. I started to make this sort of a, a project on the side and it, it took five years, but I realized pretty quickly that uh, nothing had been written substantially on this team. Um, there were no books per se, um, you know, a, a lot of the players from the 1930s, their heyday had, uh, had passed away. Um, so it was, um, you know, it sort of intrigued me because most people would know, uh, who follow, let's say Jewish sports would know who, uh, Hank Greenberg is, you know, in the 1930s and they might know Barney Ross in boxing, um, but, you know, if I was to say, you know, who's Shiky Godhoffer or Inky Lautman or Red Wolf or, um, you know, Mo Goldman or Harry Litwack, you know, you would get stares that th these people, people don't know who these uh, individuals are. And yet these guys in the 20s and 30s and into the early 40s comprised the greatest Jewish basketball team uh, that that was ever constructed. Well, I, and so some I would argue even in, in, in some certain seasons, even the greatest basketball team uh, in their leagues and or in the country, right, uh, regardless of, of their composition. And, and, oh, by the way, probably uh, I think every season uh, the award-winning uh, team with the uh, best collective uh, uh, group of names because it's probably the all-star name team uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, some of the greatest and most memorable uh, names that you'll ever find, I think, on any teams. You know, there's a lot of um... – nicknames today you know the truth the answer um the big aristotle but you know those guys back then you know um inky shiky uh they they had some very good nicknames um back in the 20s and 30s and so um you know it took a while to research i had never written a book before uh but you know i knew how to research in archives and i knew how to um, sort of make my way through uh, primary sources and, you know, how to put together a research plan. So 
at the time. So my, my next job after basketball is I was working in New Jersey uh, for six years. And that gave me uh, a, uh, more proximity uh, to Philadelphia. So I would start going down um, to Philadelphia on the weekends and I would, you know, go to, let's say, public libraries or uh, Temple University archives um, or the Philadelphia Inquirer, their archives. And I would, you know, um, get copies of of magazine articles or newspapers. There was a, a Jewish newspaper, the Jewish Exponent which had written a number of feature articles about the team long by the, by the seventies and eighties and nineties, long after their playing career. And they were good because they had interviewed a lot of these older players. So at least there were some good quotes and some uh, good context uh, for what was going on, but it largely came down to a lot of microfilm and a lot of newspapers going through the Philadelphia newspapers. Um, And I was able to connect with, maybe about 10 or 12 former players, mostly from the forties. And by this time, these gentlemen were in their eighties. So I interviewed um, most of them over the phone. Uh, I would transcribe their, um, their interviews and send it back to them just to make sure it was accurate. Um, And so I had, I had that. And, you know, I went back to the basketball hall of fame to see some of their research files um, or if they had any other material or photos. And then I just started, uh, started writing, you know, and, and um, uh, it was a, it was a really uh, wonderful experience sort of researching this team and bringing to life uh, these guys who had long been forgotten, um, you know, by world war two, by the end of world war two, they had sort of receded into um, uh traveling with the Harlem Globetrotters and being a team that uh, would sort of lay down um, as the Globetrotters were the most popular team in the country. But, you know, basketball, so the spas, um, so basketball was invented in uh, 1891 by James Naismith, who was a uh, Canadian who was studying uh, physical education uh, instruction at the International YMCA training school which was one of the first schools to offer a program for YMCA uh, physical education directors or secretaries. That school now is Springfield College. And so he was given an assignment uh, by his teacher, Luther Gulick, uh, in December of 1891 uh, to come up with a, a new indoor game that could be played. And he tried a lot of other options, such as uh, maybe soccer or rugby indoors or modifying some of the uh, other games of the day. Uh, He also looked at calisthenics, um, the Swedish model, the French model, but nothing really took with this class. And then he sort of uh, spent some time thinking about the different the nature of of games, you know, we don't want people tackling. We don't want people running. Um, and he thought back to um, a game that he had played as a kid growing up in uh, Canada, Duck on a Rock, in which, you know, you would sort of try to toss your your rock onto a larger rock. It was sort of a tossing game. And that's where he got the idea that the goal should be sort of above um, as opposed to, you know, like a football goal or a soccer goal but that you should sort of toss it 
above. And so he, he instantaneously at that point sort of figured out basketball. And he wrote these 13 rules. And the next morning he came down and he asked his secretary to type it. And he tacked it on the wall and he uh, asked the janitor if he had any uh, baskets of any sort, uh, hoops. And really uh, he, all he had was these old peach baskets. And so he took them and he hung them up on the uh, either side of the running track inside the, the gymnasium, the YMCA gymnasium in Springfield. And at the time, they happened to be 10 feet off the ground, which is why today uh, baskets are 10 feet off the ground. And the class came in and he said, look, this is uh, the last time I'm going to try something. So if it doesn't take, you know, you guys are sort of on your own. And it took and the class loved it. And the final score of that first game was uh, one nothing. And that was on December 21st, 1891, the first game of basketball. And immediately thereafter, the campus shut down for winter break. And a lot of the um, uh, kids in the class, the students, uh, took the games back with them over the break to their hometowns. And the YMCA's uh, took an interest in it. And that's how quickly the game spread was really through the YMCA's. So you have this game, which is uh, spreading really quickly. It's popular. It's an indoor activity. And all through the 1890s, you know, there are, you know, a lot of colleges and YMCA's uh, and YMHA's that are playing it. By the turn of the century, you start to have some professional leagues form. Uh, the first one was the National Basketball League. Uh, which was in 1898, and that was in Philadelphia and New Jersey and Trenton. And sort of that corridor of uh, Trenton and Philadelphia was really the uh, beginning of professional basketball. Uh, and there were a lot of early leagues over the next 25 years that had teams in and around uh, those two uh, those two cities. And so so, so Philly became almost uh, by its by its geographical nature almost a, a cradle, if you will. It did for professional basketball. It did. You know, college was really New York City, but um, Philadelphia for basketball for sure for for pre professional basketball. So while this game was getting popular, it also coincided with uh, Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe. Uh, they were escaping a lot of uh, pogroms and persecution uh, and anti-Semitism uh, in Eastern Europe. And they started to settle in uh, Northeast cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Washington, Baltimore, uh, these, these cities sort of in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic. And they would live in uh, tenement houses in, in urban areas. And you know, the parents worked very hard. Um, they usually would speak Yiddish at home. The fathers would work all day. The mothers would tend to the home with many kids. Uh, they might take in extra sewing jobs or laundry, uh, but it was a hard life uh, and they were trying to make it in America. And their kids, uh, some of whom were born overseas and some of whom were born in the United States were looking for a way to become more American. Um, which is really not uh, atypical uh, of other immigrant groups. And sports uh, was one of the easiest ways to do that, where you could become 
uh, American. And, you know, in urban areas, you know, baseball fields were few and far between. There just wasn't enough space. So basketball became the sport that was attractive to uh, these Jewish, um, these young Jewish kids. You didn't need much. You just needed um, rags that you could roll up and tape or newspaper that you could roll up into a ball. You know, you might uh, tack some, some um, peach basket or some sort of a basket to a, uh, a pole. You might also want to um, shoot it into the, a different rung on a, on a ladder or a fire escape. So in that respect, uh, it was easy. It was inexpensive. Uh, and you had lots of kids playing. And so that is how those two, you know, basketball and the uh, Jewish population around the turn of the century started to merge uh, into this. And um, there was also settlement houses, the 92nd Street Y, uh, the Young Men Hebrew Associations that helped to uh, foster basketball and physical activity and ways that this new generation can become more American. And so uh, that's how the game spread. And so going to the spas, uh, going back to this team in the uh, 19-teens around World War I, there was a very, uh, one of the high schools, South Philadelphia High School, uh, was, had a very good team and a number of, of these players wanted to continue playing after graduating from high school. So this was the end of World War I, around 1918, 1919. And uh, Eddie Gottlieb, who, who becomes uh, central to this story, and his two friends, Huey Black and Chickie Passan, uh, form, go to a, uh, the YMHA, is willing to sponsor them, they do it for a year. Uh, after that, there's another sort of social organization called the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, which was located at 4th and Reed Street. And they agreed to sponsor the team for, you know, exchange for uniforms and some publicity. Uh, so they played, you know, a handful of games. They played in some of these early, you know, uh, American basketball leagues or American leagues of Philadelphia basketball. And, after a couple years, the team uh, was sort of on its own. The uh, sponsorship uh, of the team by the spa organization ended, uh, but the the players wanted to keep their name, uh, keep the name of this team, which would always sort of identify them with their roots um, and the and the beginning of the team. So, uh, at that time in the 1920s, there was a lot of early uh, professional leagues forming again in around the. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area. And, and a bunch Eddie, of those, Gott, Eddie Gottlieb was really the uh, yeah. A bunch of those, a bunch of those were uh, largely coming out of uh, uh, companies, right? Like sort of like as uh, sidelights to uh, keep uh, various employees sort of happy and, and energized and and competitive, sort of like an, an industrial kind of theme thematic to it. It no? is, it, you know, it is. Some of the teams were were companies that you know would sponsor them for a little publicity, and and it. And there was a, you know, a bigger movement sort of more in the Midwest or in the Rust Belt where companies uh, would sponsor uh, teams, sort of industrial league. But yeah, they, there was a, a wide range of uh, teams and how they were 
assembled and who sponsored them uh, in the 1920s. It was very much sort of the wild west of professional basketball. Some of these leagues came and went quickly. Some teams could not finish a season. Um, Players didn't have exclusive contracts to any one team. So they might moonlight in other leagues under uh, aliases. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a very sort of chaotic for, I'm for guessing, a number of years. I'm guessing some kind of improvisation to scheduling too, if there was a league per se. And yeah, the schedule, yeah, the scheduling, you know, scheduling was, uh, was difficult because uh, a lot of these players could not make a living playing basketball uh, full time as they can today. So they had other jobs, team games might be on the weekends. They might be uh, in the evenings, um, sometimes they wouldn't have enough players. They might have to, you know, hire somebody, a couple of kids in the stands to play or some local hires, um, to help fill out rosters at certain time. So it was definitely a challenge. It's, it's not like, uh, having, you know, 15 players on an NBA team today. Uh, it was, it was much, much different, but the spas, you know, continue to, make a name for themselves. The, the big professional league uh, in the mid twenties was the American basketball league. And they played one year uh, or two years as the, the Philadelphia warriors, but then they went back to their spas name. Um, and then they entered in the late twenties, uh, a league called the Eastern basketball league. And, um, and they spent four years there and they won a couple of championships there. And that's when they really started to take off a little bit more. Uh, Eddie Gottlieb was able to sort of solidify a little bit the, the roster. And then uh, the depression hit it's 1933 and they want to reform the American basketball league, which had been dormant for a couple of years uh, at the onset of the great depression. And so the spas, that original ABL was kind of really, I, I think if I, if I don't have a mistake, and I have to, to look back at my uh, my trove of Robert Peterson books, but uh, it was kind of really kind of like the first earnest attempt at a, at a kind of a real pro league per se, right? As we kind of know it today, right? I mean, the Eastern League was kind of scrappy, and you're mentioning mm-hmm. all these other ones that were a little bit more either industrial or uh, you know a little loose, little looser in in, in formation. But the the original ABL seemed to me prior to the, the depression hitting was kind of like a real solid attempt to kind of solidify things into a professional. Yeah, that, that is correct. The ABL was made an earnest effort to be uh, a national league, which at that time for, for professional sports purposes sort of went to Chicago. Uh, that's <laughs> there wasn't any West coast, but yes, they tried to have exclusive contracts. Uh, they had championships. They, um, they really, you know, they hired a, a commissioner, uh, Joe Carr, uh, for a number of years, who was also instrumental in the NFL uh, at that time. Uh, George Hallis uh, with the Bears was involved with uh, the Chicago Bruins team. So uh, th- there was some there was some attempt to create some more structure to it, uh, some more professionalism to how it was administered and run. And by all accounts, it did quite well. Um and then the depression hit, which uh, forced it to shut down for a couple of years. But when it resumed, it became a little bit more regional to begin with, more sort of East Coast, Northeast, Mid-Atlantic. 
but it was really during this period from 1933 to the end of World War uh, II in 1945, where the spas really became the team that everyone remembers and associates um, with their heyday. And in that 13 years, uh, they had won like seven championships. Uh, as, as we discussed earlier, uh, not only were they some years the, just the best team in their league, but in the best team in all of professional basketball. And uh, this, is where, this is where they made their name for themselves. It also coincides with the Great Depression, the rise of anti-Semitism, and the onset of World War II. And these players would travel around um, with jerseys that had either the Hebrew lettering or that had, uh, it said Philadelphia Hebrews on the, on the jersey. There was a lot of anti-Semitism as they played in small towns in the South and the Midwest. Um, it was very, um, in, some, in some cases, a very hostile environment. Uh, it was very similar to um, other athletes uh, of that period and some of the uh, challenges they faced. But the Spas played, their performance really showed um, that they could fight, you know, stereotypes of racial inferiority uh, and that Jews were the, uh, the weaker uh, people or the weaker religion. Um, and they did, um, they did really quite well. Um, Eddie Gottlieb uh, always every year, sort of between Christmas and the New Year's, that holiday season, always scheduled a, a Midwestern trip where they would get in his car um, and there would be like seven of them and they would travel for maybe two weeks, you know, through Michigan, Ohio, um, Wisconsin, and they would make a big loop and they would play just every night or every other night games in all of these different cities. And a lot of times they didn't make a lot of money on these trips. And some of the players said, you know, Eddie, what, what are we doing this for? I mean, it's a lot of traveling. The pay's not great. You know, the environments aren't wonderful. Uh, and he says, we're doing this for the future of professional basketball. And so even then, I think Eddie Gottlieb realized how important trips like that were to help popularize and promote uh, the game of basketball. Well, look, he, he was as he's obviously uh, instrumental to this entire story. Right. And, and we're going to do a whole other episode on, on him specifically because he, he in and of itself incorporating the spas but but beyond that is just is a a hugely intriguing figure but like basketball arguably especially in his later years be just was his uh i wouldn't call it life with passion and 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 uh, almost to a point of being you know overly consuming i guess to a to a uh to a fault um uh, but i i we're, i want to get back to sort of that that sort of uh, uh the discrimination part in a minute but i i, I one sort of entree into that uh when Gottlieb uh, and friends brought uh, the spas into the ABL for those two years, he did something very interesting. He changed the name. Now I I'm guessing some of those sensitivities and or those issues were probably part of that, or, or am I just projecting onto that by changing the name of the warriors? Yeah, I think, I think it might've been uh, a little bit of, uh reflecting some of the sensitivities. I think it maybe had a more general appeal, the Warriors. Um, 
more of a national league. Uh, but after, you know, even though the team was still all Jewish, uh, but after that, uh, he went back to the spas and, and never deviated from that uh, until the team disbanded uh, in the late 50s. Yeah, and that, 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 that itself is, I think, is a statement. I, I just wonder, uh, neither of us were there, right? Like, uh, I'm just, I'm really curious, and maybe it's unanswerable or imponderable at this point, but um, what went into thinking about uh, uh, changing the name uh, for that first run and then reverting back to it, uh, arguably with, with pride and passion and, and arguably distinctiveness, uh, for its, you know, uh, for a whole, probably a whole bunch of reasons. Once the ABL came back in its new, uh, reconstituted form, uh, you know, the, the name obviously doesn't roll off the tongue per se. Right. And, <laughs> but it, uh, and it certainly was distinct and unique, but I, there had to be something there as to like why he, you know, they changed the name in the first place and then why they reverted it back. It seems to be like there's some real, some real, uh, story behind that. I just, I wish we knew. <laughs> no, I would agree. I, uh, I don't know, but I think um, I think he took eventually a lot of pride in in the spas and wanted to be associated with them. And um, I think he he never forgot his roots, uh, and I think that was important to him and where he came from. Later in life, he said that he got involved in a lot of things in his life, which he did, you know, boxing and wrestling and uh, Negro League baseball and the NBA. He says the one thing I loved always was the was the spas, um, and that's where he got his start. And I think that was pure passion um, after World War One and keeping it going during difficult times. And for everything he achieved afterwards, uh, I think the spas uh, really, really was uh, very sentimental to him. What's this? Blue Chew. All right. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom, guys. Hey, Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets combat, he says, all forms of ED and can help men gain extra confidence for when it's time to perform. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problems here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil, you say that three times fast, tablets are chewable. Yes, Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from some, from some extra confidence when it's time to <clears throat> perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And of course, we've got a special deal for our great listeners. Try Blue Chew free. Yeah, free when you use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W, bluechew.com. Promo code GOODSEATS to receive your first month free 
And of course, we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this little uh, episode here. And now back to our conversation. Well, explain to me sort of what a typical spas game would be like in Philadelphia, because it was more than just a basketball game, right? It was almost like a, a cultural event, almost on a weekly or biweekly basis. So the, the Philadelphia spas played their home games at the Broadwood hotel, which is located, uh, which was located at the corner of broad and wood streets in Philadelphia. Now, basketball in the 20s and 30s, and even into the uh, parts of the 40s, was not really a popular game like baseball or boxing or horse racing or college football at the time. It was still seen as uh, a rough sport, sort of a second-tier sport. Um, You know, players wore uh, knee pads, you know, it, it was a uh, low scoring. There was lots of fouls. Um, it was sort of brute force and it didn't always garner as much attention in the press as some of these other sports. So to help promote this, the sport, a lot of the teams had dancing bands and dancing that would perform either at halftime or after the game. And this was a way to uh, draw in more interest. And the spas were no different. I I mean, Eddie Gottlieb understood an opportunity when it arose. So usually the spas, as an example, would play Saturday night at the Broadwood Hotel. And it would be on the third or fourth floor in the ballroom. So the the public would come and it would always seat about 2,500 to 3,000. It was always largely the same group of people, which is... Uh, second, you know, second generation children, uh, men and women looking for a way to assimilate, uh, meet friends, uh, watch a ball game, have a dance. And so they would come, the men would play, pay about uh, 65 cents, the women about 35 cents. They would come in, they would grab a program, they would uh, walk up a couple flights of stairs. It would be a very sort of small arena. Uh, usually about 65 by 35 feet. There was chairs set up all around uh, on the floor. And then there would be sort of a balcony above that people could sit. And there would be a game and sometimes at halftime, but usually after the game, there would be a a dance. Now, one of the players, uh, Gil Fitch, uh, uh, grew up in Philadelphia, went to Temple University and loved uh, music, uh, loved to play. And he, he had a band and Eddie Gottlieb realized, you know, Gil, how about after the game, you and your band play and for an extra, you know, an hour people can dance uh, and, you know, have a good time. So after the game, they would sort of run in, change into their tuxedos, come back out and perform for another 30 to 60 minutes. And this is where the the crowd would come and they would dance and they would uh, meet future spouses uh, and have a good time and then go out for a bite to eat before going home. Uh, There was a 
a radio show at the time called the children's hour and a, uh, a young teenager, Kitty Callen won a contest there. Uh, she later went on to great fame with the uh, Jimmy Dorsey band uh, and had a, a very long and prosperous uh, singing career, but she got her start uh, singing with Gil Fitch and his band uh, at spas games and uh, Gil would pick her up and drop her off uh, after the dances because she was uh, underage. She was a teenager. Um, so there would be dancing. And then afterwards, they would go out. Players would go out for a bite to eat. Now, at the time, basketball didn't have, you know, four quarters and two halves. Uh, it could be two halves. It could be three quarters. Uh, there, there wasn't a sort of codified way uh, of the way the games was, were played, how many quarters, how many periods, uh, how many halves. It, it was a little disjointed for a while, but they would play. And the other interesting fact about uh, home games for the spas was that the public address announcer and the person who handled the, the publicity was a young guy named Dave Zinkoff. And Dave Zinkoff was a, a Philadelphia native his father uh, ran a delicatessen. He went to Temple University and his uh, parents wanted him to become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And he didn't really want to. He wanted to pursue a career in, in basketball, uh, in sports broadcasting. And he announced some games at, at Temple. He uh, went down to New Orleans for the first Sugar Bowl uh, in the mid-1930s. He did some boxing and basketball matches on on the campus of Temple and then was always a lifelong friend of Eddie's and he got his start uh, doing publicity. Uh, he would do the halftime promotions and the halftime shows and the announcements. But he also published a four-page program called The Spa's Sparks. And the first couple pages would always preview the, the players or the teams or the upcoming game. Uh, it was like a program, a four-page program. And in it, you know, there was always a sort of a raffle number. You could win a suit. But the last page was the gossip column. And in it, he would, uh, you know, give sort of a little bit of a rundown of so-and-so got married, so-and-so had a kid, so-and-so just came back from a, a trip to the Catskills, so-and-so just graduated college. It was really sort of a gossip column for uh, Philadelphia Jewish community. And these programs were wildly popular. And the hope was that you would come to a game, go to a dance, win the suit, uh, and meet your spouse. And it became a really important way for a younger generation to assimilate uh, in a sort of a non-threatening environment and become very uh, comfortable and uh, become more American uh, by doing so. Well, and, and it, it seems like, I, you know, I, I referenced uh, Robert Peterson's, uh, uh, not by name now, but now, well, now, Cages to Jump Shots book. There's a, um, there's a great quote in here by, um, oh, by uh, Shiki, uh, Shiki, Shiki, you said, Shiki Gotthoffer? Yes. That's his name. Uh, I, I, uh, we couldn't go anywhere in Philadelphia without being recognized. It was a very nice feeling. We were very well loved. Even William Penn's statue on top of City Hall. Used to bow to us when we came by. He left. Um, I, I, I suspect 
these uh, the team and these uh, I'm sure it was a highlight of the of the social circle, um, the social calendar for I guess you could call it the Jewish singles crowd. But I'm wondering if it if, if it extended beyond that, like into uh, to other ethnic groups or or just to the uh, young kids uh, generally, despite you know whatever you know religious affiliation they may, might be uh, associated with, or was this probably predominantly a uh, that of a Jewish kind of a singles uh, vibe to it? So with with the spas, it was largely uh, Jewish singles, largely Philadelphia based uh, for their home games. But during the 1920s and 30s and into the 40s, there were three other uh, teams that were comparable with the Philadelphia spas. One was the New York Renaissance, the Rens, which played uh, in Harlem and they were an all black team. There was the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, which was founded in Chicago, and the original Celtics, which was a, a, an Irish team. So what's important is that basketball developed along ethnic lines to begin with. Uh, so you had, you know, teams like the Buffalo Germans, the original Celtics, uh, the Spas, the Wrens, the Globetrotters. And with the Wrens, they played in the uh, Renaissance Casino on 137th Street in Harlem. And much like the spas, they also had uh, dancing and jazz bands and music as well. And so I think it was a uh, for communities and for um, certain populations to to foster a greater sense of acceptance and community. And so the spas weren't the only uh, team that had that. Uh, the, the the New York Renaissance was certainly another team that did as well. Oh, so that, that's fascinating because it's it's a it's a it's a huge overlap to uh, ethnicity and or uh, identity, right? Uh, in yeah. while at the same time uh, assimilating or t- trying to sim- assimilate in you know a melting pot of of America at the time. So that's uh, and you can. Uh, so that's, you know, I think that's lost on a whole generation or two or three, frankly, of basketball fans to know sort of that, that those, that, that is, that is an essential sort of rooting of, of this sport from, from whence it came. And um, it's just as much a social phenomenon as it is a sporting one at that. For sure. I mean, it was, I, I you know, I would agree with uh, what you said. It's uh, it was very important uh, to find a way to be American, to be social, uh, to form a community, to have a sense of identity. And it's much different than it is today. And, you know, a lot of this sort of ended with World War II. But before World War II, you know, basketball and these ethnic communities really were important to the uh, development and growth of, bas- of professional basketball. And teams like the Wrens and the Celtics and the Globetrotters and, and the Spas were very, very instrumental uh, in the development, growth, and expansion of the game of basketball. You know, the Philadelphia Spas were able to play in a league. And for a while, certainly the original Celtics did, and they also uh, barnstormed. But the Globetrotters and the Wrens uh, were not allowed to play in a, in a professional league. They were full-time barnstormers. And there wasn't an all-black basketball league for them to join like the Negro leagues of baseball. Uh, 
this was, you know, they would play other uh, black teams across the country, or they would play uh, against white teams. And the, the Rens and the Spas played, you know, hundreds of games against each other over the decades. Uh, and they would travel together. Could be uh, upstate New York, could be uh, in Ohio, could be in the Midwest, and they played each other. And those um, were really important games to the development of basketball. Uh, but the Wrens, you know, and the Globetrotters had to do it outside of uh, professional leagues while the, the Spas had an opportunity to be in a league and also to barnstorm uh, outside of the leagues as a way to make extra money and help promote the game. Sure, which is uh, right out of the, uh, the playbook of, uh, of the Negro League baseball uh, survival uh, schema, right? To, to a supplement and or but, – but also at the same time, it's also to prove – uh, just how good you were against some of the best competition. I mean, even, uh, you know, uh, even um, uh, Gottlieb was, uh, you know, kind of uh, throwing up little challenges to, to folks. Like even, bef- you know, when the ABL was forming, right, he, he, he was playing against some of these uh, teams from, say, the, the Metropolitan League in New York or, you know, it, it almost as a uh, – uh, you know, almost like it's a challenge to sort of say, hey, you know what, we're we're just as good, if not better than you guys are. And and that just uh, probably instills even further confidence in pride. And um, I'm really curious uh, if you could just, you know, in, in your research, who are some of the, shall we say, standout names, not just for their own namesake, because we've mentioned a few of those, but in terms of players that, you know, either kind of stood out in your mind as 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 being, uh, uh, you know, uh, great players or, or interesting stories, or perhaps maybe just uh, lost to time and or not sort of uh, 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 remembered, sadly, for their, uh, for their prowess. Because th- this was a team that was just, you know, effectively loaded with talent over the years. So there are a number of players. Uh, I would start with a gentleman, Joel Scheike Godhoffer. He was born in the Bronx. Uh, He grew up in the Bronx um, and he was what we would consider today to be a gym rat. Uh, He was also a high school basketball teammate of Hank Greenberg. And Joel played uh, starting in 1933 with the Spas uh, through World War II. And he was arguably their best player. He uh, was tough. He was fundamentally sound. Uh, He was an all-around good player. He won a couple of uh, Most Valuable Player Awards for the American Basketball League. Uh, When he retired, he was making $100 a game and was the highest paid player uh, in the league at that time. Uh, But growing up, he would go to school in the morning. And underneath his clothes, he would have a, uh, his basketball gear on because the minute the bell sounded and he could get out and uh, play basketball, he would take his clothes off and uh, go and play uh, basketball. And he's played all the time, morning, noon, and night. He once said that he really didn't even know that girl existed at the time uh, and really would be what we consider a gym rat. But he was really the the best player on that team. There was a gentleman, Harry Litwack. So a number of people might know Harry as being uh, the basketball hall of fame coach for Temple university. He won uh, the 1969 NIT championship and took his 
team twice to the NCAA Final Four. He coached Hal Greer uh, in college. Uh, but he got his start in the mid to late 20s uh, with the Spas. And he was a left-handed shooter, sort of a stocky player. And then for 20 years, he was the freshman coach at Temple. And he also served as an assistant with the Spas. And from time to time, uh, certainly uh, in the 40s, he was the the coach for the uh, Spas for a while. But he was a, a wonderful player. Uh, Red Klotz, who most people know as running and owning the Washington Generals, which was one of the teams that traveled and played with the Globetrotters for, for decades. Red Klotz grew up in... Uh, in South Philadelphia and his hero growing up because uh, of the way he played was, was Harry Litwack. Uh, it was interesting to hear Red Klotz talk about Harry Litwack and the influence he had on his game and what a beautiful left-handed shooter he was. And so Harry would be a name. Uh, there was a center named Mo Goldman. Uh, he was from Brooklyn uh, he played at Franklin K. Lane High School and then played at City College of New York under Nat Holman. He joined the team in 1933 and played about a decade with them. And at the time, basketball centers were not expected to score. They were really sort of a one-dimensional uh, player. You know, at the end, at, after, for, for many, many years, after each basket, the teams would go back to center court and have a jump ball. Uh, so the center was really about getting the jump and, and, and obtaining the possession for your team or getting a rebound. They weren't really expected to, to score or to provide much assistance uh, on the offensive end. But Mo was one of the centers that started to transition the game uh, away from uh, centers that just ha were sort of one-dimensional. He could score. He could run. Uh, he really sort of challenged what the position uh, could be, the center position could be. And he was very influential for a while in the, in the 30s. Uh, there was a, a gentleman, Cy, David Cy Castleman, who was a wonderful uh, outside shooter uh, and – um, he had good looks and was, uh, could really uh, shoot the two-handed set, set shot better than uh, most players. Uh, he became a trusted friend of Eddie Gottlieb, and uh, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, he tried to help uh, Wilt Chamberlain better perfect uh, or improve upon his, his foul shooting, which was never the best. Um, so he had a, a, an influence certainly long after uh, his time with the Spas. Uh, there was a gentleman, Alexander P.D. Rosenberg, who joined the Spas late in the uh, 1930s. Uh, and he, he joined uh, Eddie on, the, on a team, the Philadelphia Warriors, after World War II, which was part of the Basketball Association of America, which eventually led into the, uh, what we know as today's NBA. Uh, and during World War II, uh, Rosenberg was uh, on the West Coast uh, on a military base and, and keeping tabs with military basketball. And he found uh, a guy that he recommended for Eddie to sign, which was Joe Folks, uh, Jumping Joe Folks out of Murray State in Kentucky. 
and uh, Jumping Joe starred with the Philadelphia Warriors for the first couple years after World War II and became one of the most uh, uh, offensive-minded players and really started to average 20 or 25 points a night, which was a big deal. And then there was a lot more scoring. So P.D. Rosenberg had a big influence uh, on Eddie and the game in discovering uh, Jumping Joe folks. There were players like Red Rosen and Gil Fitch who were part of um, the Philadelphia contingent, the Temple University contingent, who were quite uh, good and effective during the 1930s. Uh, In the 1940s, you had a gentleman, uh, Dutch Garfinkel, Jack Dutch Garfinkel out of New York, who played at St. John's. Uh, You know, most people would know the sort of the point guard position as being Uh, sort of uh, Bob Cousy uh, in the 1950s, but really before him, um, before Bob Cousy, you had players like Dutch Garfinkel who could really dribble, dribble behind the back and through their legs and was a little more flashy uh, and started to challenge the the norms of what a point guard could be. Uh, And Dutch was really instrumental uh, in making that shift. Um, and obviously Red Klotz, who probably did more than anybody to uh, promote the uh, globalization of basketball for about six or seven decades uh, with the Washington Generals. He uh, grew up in South Philadelphia, played with Villanova University. Uh, there was a Before the main event with the Spas, there was sort of a junior team called the Spas Reserves, and he got his start with the Spas Reserves. And then in World War II, eventually uh, moved up uh, to the main team uh, and uh, played uh, throughout uh, the rest of his life and was really instrumental in um, growing the game globally. Um, So, you know, these are, are sort of a handful of some of the players whose names have been lost Uh, to history, but certainly them, Eddie Gottlieb uh, was really instrumental in professional basketball, the founding of the Basketball Association of America. Uh, He was also uh, did the scheduling by pen and uh, pencil and paper by himself, no computers, uh, all for the decades. You know, he ran the Philadelphia Warriors. Uh, He had Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, He was very involved. Dave Zinkoff became, after the Spas, became an announcer for the Philadelphia Warriors and then was the announcer from 1963 to 1985 with the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, He had a distinctive uh, way of uh, announcing Julius Irving and Tom Gola, Gola Goal and the Big Dipper. Uh, was very uh, colorful and was probably the most well-known announcer across the United States for decades. Uh, So, Um, These are some of the individuals who really made their mark uh, with professional basketball and whose names, uh, unfortunately, have been lost to history. Yeah, and, and look, I, I encourage our audience to uh, to go on to Wikipedia and just look at the uh, the roster uh, because the names themselves, even the spe- the ones, I, are just they're just I love these names. I mean, everybody from from Jiggs Downey to James Soup Campbell. Uh, 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 Buck Fleming, uh, uh, you know, there's some, some great Menchie Goldblatt. Can't remember. Can't forget Emmanuel Menchie Goldblatt. I mean, just just a great, just fantastic names. Uh, uh, and you wonder just the origins of all those, too. It have to be stories in and of themselves. You're, you're mentioning, uh, obviously, Gottlieb is a central character in all of this. Um, 
But I, I guess I, I want to kind of maybe uh, round third base here in our conversation um, with sort of, I, I, let's call it the denouement of, of, uh, of the spas uh, in Philadelphia, because in uh, 40, 1946 is when uh, one of the two uh, tributaries to what ultimately became the NBA, that being the Basketball Association of America, the other thing being the uh, uh, National Basketball League, um, caught his eye, shall we say. Uh, and obviously, all of the stuff that Gottlieb had pioneered, learned, improvised, uh, mastered, wh- wh- whatever, you know, I mean, he was... Uh, this was a guy who was, you know, he was coaching the team. He was finding players. He was selling tickets. He was promoting the hell out of the thing. He was counting the gate. You know, I mean, this is, he, he was, whether he knew it or not, he was basically learning just about everything there was about what, if you will, a professional, uh, not only basketball team, but a professional sports team might uh, need to do and, and, and understand in order to be successful. I'm just curious as to, um, I, I I don't know like why he obviously left the spas and then sold them. Um, I'm guessing because he saw maybe what was finally going to happen, right? Which maybe he got it in the glint of his eye back when the old ABL got going was maybe like the real, it was going to really happen this time that the pro game was really going to set, was set to kind of take the leap and, and, and go for it. And he wanted to be part of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so after World War II, the basketball in, in 1946, the Basketball Association of America was formed. And this, this league was owners of hockey arenas who wanted more dates in their arenas besides hockey and the ice capades. And, and the ice capades were quite popular at the time. So they formed a basketball league. But there was still a rival Midwestern League called the National Basketball League, which was founded in 1937. That league had the better players, but the cities were not always uh, top-tier cities. Yeah, Fort Wayne, for example. No, no Fort Wayne, it might be Syracuse. It was, uh, you know, Youngstown. I mean, it was smaller. Sheboygan, Oshkosh. So they had the better players, but the Basketball Association of America had the better arenas and the better cities. So for a number of years, there was sort of a war going on with them. Eventually, in 1949, that league merges to form the National Basketball Association. So in 1946, after the war, they're looking to start this new league. And Eddie Gottlieb is, is instrumental in, in, that, in that league. There was a team that was going to be in Philadelphia. He hooked on with that. It was called the Philadelphia Warriors, probably as, an, uh, as a reflection back onto that team in the uh, American Basketball League in the mid-20s for a couple seasons. And he really had um, authority to run that team, stock it with his players. So he only took a couple of his uh, former Spas players with him. Uh, Now, the ABL after World War II became what we would consider today a minor league. It was largely a weekend league again. Uh, The cities were maybe Philadelphia, you know, New Britain, Hartford, uh, you know, looking maybe Scranton, 
you know, they, they were really smaller cities. So it was, uh, it wasn't an official farm system, but it sort of served as a little bit of a, uh, a farm system for, uh, BAA teams. So I th- by that point, Eddie was less involved with the team. Harry Litwack was running them. And I think by World War, by the end of World War II, there was much greater appetite uh, for professional basketball. And part of that was the, the success of military teams and what was happening during World War II, which helped sort of promote uh, and lay even a greater foundation for professional ball. And I think at that point, Eddie felt, you know, I think this has a more of a chance to make it. Uh, the, the cities are, are bigger. The reach is greater. Uh, the, the fans, the amount of fans, the money eventually could be better. So, you know, the spas played in the ABL for a couple of years after that in the late forties, but were really not competitive. Uh, they were not all Jewish at all. In fact, it was just the name only. And then uh, they became one of the three or four touring teams with the Harlem Globetrotters. And by that point, they had nothing to do with uh, being Jewish. They were just a team that traveled with the Globetrotters, like the Boston Trojans or the Washington Generals. um, And they would play against the Globetrotters. And what's interesting is professional basketball in the 50s did not do uh, that well. Not what we consider today. It was not financially sound. Uh, So the Globetrotters would play double headers. Uh, in the arenas with the with the NBA. And the interesting thing is the NBA would be the first game and the Globetrotters would be the second game. And for years, the Globetrotters kept uh, early professional basketball in the 50s uh, afloat because it wasn't that popular. Uh, and then by 1959, uh, the Spas officially ended play. Uh, they were sort of disbanded and he was, uh, Gottlieb was, uh, getting Wilt Chamberlain for his team in Philadelphia. And the game was, was changing uh, tremendously. And by then, uh, you know, the spots were sort of a distant memory and really hadn't been competitive like we would know uh, since the end of World War II. Now, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but uh, I, upon selling the team to Red Klotz, um, uh, I think it was in 1950 or so, um, and then becoming basically, I guess, a full-time, if you will, uh, uh, barnstorming uh, uh, mark, I guess, for the Globetrotters and, 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 uh, and their touring and whatnot. Um, I, did they or did, did there uh, – is there some lineage somewhere in there uh, evolve into the Washington Generals themselves? I, I think there's some lore out there that the spas essentially became – what is now known as, or what be, what ultimately became the Washington Generals, or is that just sort of maybe wishful thinking? And yeah, so there, there's a myth that the Spas became the Generals, as well as uh, Eddie selling the team to Red Klotz. And when I had a chance to visit Red uh, in um, in New Jersey and ask him about it, he unequivocally said that he did not sell the Spas to him. And um, they did not become the Washington generals. So it's a myth that's been out there, but according to red clots, there is no truth to that. 
Ah, that's interesting. See, we're breaking some news years after the fact here on this little show. Uh, that, so that's interesting. Um, but it did seem uh, that does seem regardless of if there was an ownership uh, change or not, uh, it does seem like the diaspora of what was the spas at that time kind of did get integrated, if you will, into uh, the, the Globetrotters realm of um, uh, uh, barnstorming and, and competition of such. Yeah. For, for sure. And, and, you know, Abe Saperstein, who ran the Globetrotters, and Eddie Gottlieb were very, very good friends for decades. And both were involved in promoting Negro League baseball. And so they had uh, a connection outside of professional basketball. And during uh, the 1950s, Dave Zinkoff went on a couple of European tours with with Abe to help promote and be their PR person as they, as they uh, went overseas. So there was always a connection between the two. Um, and, uh, you know, for many years it served basketball. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, and, and in many respects, you could go to a, a, a Globetrotters uh, uh, tour when, when, when we can all do that again and they're playing the generals, you could actually kind of squint really hard and kind of, you know, see some, <laughs> Some at least a couple of tributaries. But so let me let me wind up with this question then. Um, and it's one we ask a lot of our guests, especially with teams uh, that uh, have, uh, you know, either relocated or gone on to other uh, incarnations and not sort of just died completely. Uh, and that is, you know, where in your mind does uh, the legacy of the spas shall we say, officially reside? And now you're an historian by trade. So this actually may be a real more, you know, uh, meaty question than, than just, uh, you know, to, to, to the, uh, the average hoi polloi that we would normally ask. But I, the, I guess the question really is, so if there were to be celebratory things or jerseys or uh, throwbacks or, or uh, you know, uh, Hall of Fames, uh, adding uh, uh, banners and, and commemorating and plaques and stuff. Is that going to be in Philadelphia somewhere? Is that should that be with the Warriors in Golden State? Uh, does it go, rest with the Globetrotters organization because the diaspora of what the spas eventually became sort of wound up there? Uh, in terms of the barnstorming kind of thing? I think the spa's legacy resides in Philadelphia, and it resides in in Jewish Philadelphia. The the Broadwood Hotel, where the team played its game, is now actually a parking lot for a a hospital. And uh, there is a historical marker out there commemorating that the spas played their games there. There are some Jewish... Philadelphia Jewish Hall of Fames in which they've been honored. Uh, They have been actually nominated for the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. They have not been elected. As I I mentioned earlier, those three other seminal teams of the uh, Harlem Globetrotters, New York Renaissance, and the original Celtics, they are all enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame as, as teams. And the spas are a glaring weakness in that they have not been formally inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. They are peers, uh, certainly equal, and at times they exceeded uh, the other three teams in achievements and um, 
accomplishments. And their, their omission is a glaring omission when, when you look back at sort of the importance of ethnic teams uh, that help build and spread the popularity of professional basketball sort of pre-World War II. Uh, it is my hope that one day they will be formally recognized. Uh, they do, there is an exhibit that's part of their newly renovated museum that talks about Jewish basketball. They are incorporated, uh, but they are not seen as being a Hall of Fame team yet. Uh, the other is, you know, their style of play uh, was was not the traditional sort of plotting style of play of teams in the 20s and 30s and 40s. By, by the 30s, they had developed a real sort of fast-breaking type of offense, which was very different than what, what you would see today. Uh, you know, the ball would rarely touch the ground. The players would move and pass, um, and, the game, and the ball would just go from one player to the next. And uh, it, it was a wonderful thing to see. It was, it was fast-paced. They were fundamentally sound. The ball didn't touch the ground. There wasn't extra dribbling. Uh, there wasn't a lot of isolation or one-one play. It was really sort of a team game where the where the basketball just sort of floated between everybody, uh, looking for the best shot. And I think that style of play is is lost on basketball. And I think the team aspect sometimes gets uh, muddied uh, as you know, as players get to more sort of isolation and, and playing hero ball. But I think the spas still have a tremendous legacy. Uh, it was when basketball was a Jewish game. Um, you know, today, uh, Jews might be more owners or general managers or in position or commissioners, things of that nature. But uh, for decades, uh Basketball stood on the shoulder of Jewish players uh, as they really promoted the game uh, and took it out of the urban areas. Well, and I, and I think this is this is uh, part of the reason why we do shows like this because uh, the, you know I think it's you know as I said earlier it's lost on a uh, on a whole generation or two or three frankly of uh, folks who consider themselves basketball fans either the collegiate level or or the pro game especially. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, today's generations, they kind of just think that the, some of these teams and franchises and, and rules and all that kind of stuff just magically sort of occurred. Right. And they they're uh, how these things came to be. I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface about, you know, how instrumental uh, people like Eddie Gottlieb were in in helping uh, create and bend and shape and evolve rules. Right. Uh, the scheduling. You mentioned it before. I mean, this is a guy who literally by hand for almost for decades until a, a computer program in the in the late 70s, early 80s kind of took over the. Uh, but he you know, he it was an art and a science that he did by hand, putting that schedule together and all the logistics and stuff. I mean, this is these are, you know, it's on the backs of of these guys and, and this this organization and and uh, the play and the, and the the social. I mean, it's all part of the fabric of. If you call yourself a basketball fan, this is part of that fabric. And to me, it's fascinating. And, and it, why it's fascinating is because I completely unknown to me, right? I consider myself as an average sports fan. I mean, I, basketball is, you know, certainly up there. And, um, and I grew up as a, you know, a long, uh, you know, long suffering New Jersey Nets fan back in the day when I was growing up. Uh, but, 
you know, it, even that story, right? You know, playing in the, the hardwoods of, of uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, in an armory somewhere in the old ABA. And, but even on that, you know, that, it's, that wouldn't have happened without generations before, like you're describing. And um, I guess the last question would be, what, what do you think happens? Do you think that this team does ultimately get commemorated in the Basketball Hall of Fame or by the NBA or some other uh, you know, uh, official sort of coronation, so to speak, from some of some group that, you know, that matters um, uh, before it kind of sadly maybe drifts away. I, you'd hate to see that. Yeah, I, I think eventually they will they will get inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And I think that will be the crowning achievement of of recognizing and making sure a team like that uh, is not forgotten. I'm confident one day they will eventually be elected. You know, if you consider yourself a Golden State Warriors fan, uh, you think you understand the Harlem Globetrotters and their story. Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, you you don't know the half of those and other things uh, without more fully understanding the uh, the story of the spas. And um, it's to me, it's fascinating. I, I we love going deep on all this stuff because uh, there's so much history behind all this stuff. And and again, to, to sort of just take everything at face value, say in today's NBA, uh, without understanding sort of how the stuff got that way, uh, this is a great. Uh, case in point, uh, the book you need to get, it's called The Spas. And again, it's S-P-H-A-S, uh, which was the acronym, The Life and Times of Basketball's Greatest Jewish Team. It's by our guest this week, Doug Stark. Uh, it is published by Temple University Press. Uh, it is available wherever fine books are found. And of course, you can find a link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. It's number, what is it now? 207, my goodness, with Doug Stark. And uh, you'll find a convenient link uh, to the book, uh, uh, to Amazon. We'll get a few shekels of of uh, referral love. We always uh, love getting a couple of uh, extra uh, dollars and cents to kind of keep our lights on. We appreciate that. Uh, while you're there, you can also get uh, Doug's other book, uh, When Basketball Was Jewish, uh, which is more of an interview-oriented uh, uh, setup. Uh, voices of those who played the game, uh, also quintessential uh, to understanding uh, a major tributary uh, in the formation of the pro game here in these uh, little old United States. And um, just fascinating stuff uh, all around. And uh, I thank Doug for uh, the conversation and the learnings for sure. I thank, of course, my pal Jerry Payne, uh, this week, who has uh, put together all the pieces uh, nimbly and uh, uh, in perfect uh, fashion. We appreciate his production skills, as always. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. And look, if you want to follow our show, by all means, we're on social media. Don't uh, be shy. Find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, there's a little Facebook page devoted to us. Uh, you can send us email if you'd like. Go right ahead. We we try to keep up with it, and we owe a lot of people a lot of responses. But uh, uh, keep doing it. We will uh, get to it. We eventually. We promise. That's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Thank you for your proverbial cards and letters. 
Uh, we have a little email newsletter we'd like to send out each week in advance of each week's show. Give you a little head start uh, to your weekly listening. And uh, just find that link uh, on the website at goodseatstillavailable.com. And uh, I, what else? I don't think there's anything else. That's it. Uh, my uh, uh, condolences to uh, all of your loved ones who have to uh, uh, depart with you and not see you for, for hours on end as the uh, Hoops Tournament uh, gets into gear. Um, don't forget the NIT. That's still happening in some form or fashion. And yeah, the CBI, the, the College Basketball Invitational down to eight teams this year, but uh, it's uh, it's still uh, alive too. So plenty of college hoops. Uh, hope uh, you don't lose any uh, any relationships over uh, the intense amount of time you'll be spending in front of the tube, but I know uh, I'll find it interesting and, and a, a bit of a return to normalcy. Uh, let's all hope, shall we? Uh, until then, enjoy the hoops, uh, enjoy the week, and uh, we'll see you next time, next week, of course, uh, here right back at you. Thanks very much for listening. Take care, everybody.